Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hildy Grossman. Hi, I'm Hildy Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. My friend Jordan is here to introduce our guests. You bet, Hildy. Today's podcast is entitled Clinical Trials and Tribulations, and we've assembled an incredible panel, including Dr. Alicia Sequist, Director of the Center for Innovation in Early Cancer Detection at Mass General Hospital and Landry Family Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Also joining us is Dr. Opal Bezuroy, PhD and Vice President of Research for Longevity. He's a terrific patient advocate. And we have two lovely ladies who happen to be neighbors, Linnea Olson and Diane Legg, both of whom have benefited from their own clinical trials, and they have a great story to tell. So, Hildy, take it away. Well, I'm so um, I'm so pleased to be able to have this very important conversation this morning, clinical trials and tribulations, and with outstanding guests this morning of uh, Diane Legg, Linnea Olson, Lisha Sequist, and Upal Basu Roy. I um, I wanted to start out and talk about clinical trials because some people have heard about clinical trials, some people have misinformation about clinical trials. So basically just to say that clinical trials are research studies aimed at evaluating medical, surgical, or behavioral interventions. And they're the primary way researchers can find out if a new treatment or a new drug is safe to use and effective. Um, with the right population. So um, starting there, I'm wondering if maybe, Diane, you would be willing to share your story um, about lung cancer and your experience with clinical trials. Thank you, uh, Hildy. Well, I was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2004, so just uh, about 16 and a half years ago. Um, I found out that I had lung cancer purely accidentally. I actually had pulled a back muscle picking up my then one-year-old son. And I went to see a doctor um, and they wanted to rule out a pulmonary embolism. So ordered a CAT scan for me. I actually did just pull a back muscle and had I just gone home and taken Advil, I would have been fine for a while. But um, when they did the CAT scan, they saw something on my left lung and it it actually took several months for us to actually get a diagnosis because during this whole time, everyone kept telling me that there was no way that um, it was lung cancer, that I was more apt to get struck by lightning than get lung cancer. And um, during this time, a, a family friend of mine was diagnosed with lung cancer five months earlier. And I thought it was a fluke, you know, this young, non-smoking, healthy woman having lung cancer. But in the back of my mind, as we were going through this, I thought like, if this could happen to Sue, could it also happen to me? Um, anyways, it, it, it was lung cancer and it was shocking, obviously. And that's one of the things that I think over the years, most people really are misunderstood about who is at risk for lung cancer. And it's really anybody with lungs. Um, you don't have to have a smoking history in order to get this disease, sadly. So um, I actually, when I was diagnosed, I did catch it early um, at the time. I had surgery, I had uh, adjuvant chemo, and then a year and a half later, my lung cancer came back in both of my lungs. Um, 
I actually did something that was a little bit not the norm. I had a doctor who suggested that I do a watchful wait because the lung cancer was growing quite slowly. And so when he suggested a watchful wait, I don't think he was thinking I would be doing it for years, but maybe some few months. And it ended up that we were able to buy quite a bit of time during this watchful wait. And at the time, Hildy, one of the things in the back of my head was when I started my next treatment, I wanted it to be on a clinical trial. And, um, you know, we, we kept trying to figure out when is the right time for me to start treatment. And it wasn't a simple question at all. But in my mind, I was still looking for something that might be uh, new research that we could get involved in. And I, what I didn't necessarily want to do is start a treatment that was available to me, you know, 10 years earlier that I, I you know, I wanted something new. And so that was one of the um, attractions for me to get on a clinical trial in order to help with the research, quite frankly, because I feel like I've gotten so much time out of my journey and having lung cancer. And I've been very, very fortunate that um, to give back and to hopefully do some kind of a clinical trial would also, um, you know, move this research going forward. So I would, I was on my first trial. Unfortunately, the trial that I was on was too toxic for me. However, it definitely helped me. And one of the things that I find about the clinical trials is sometimes they might not be as long lasting as you want them to be, but they could get you from one treatment to another. So I was on that clinical trial only for about six months. And then I had to come off the clinical trial and I had to do another watchful wait period because at that point, any kind of medicine that I was taking for the lung cancer, um, I, I wasn't able to tolerate due to the clinical trial that I had been on. It had impacted that for me. I went on my second clinical trial three and a half years ago and I was on that clinical trial for three years. And it also, um, you know, it was extremely helpful. I mean, I, I, I give it all the credit for me still being here today. And um, I was on that clinical trial for three years. Um, and then my lung cancer changed again. And I ended up having to go off the clinical trial this past November. And I started on a new med, med which is an FDA approved med. It's not a clinical trial, but it's, um, it's working. So that's all great news. But again, I feel really fortunate that I've had the opportunity for both of these clinical trials that I've been on because it definitely has um, helped me um, kind of move through this journey that I'm on myself. I'd like to address a question to the doctor, Dr. Sequist. When people hear the term clinical trial, they sometimes think, oh, really? Is that all there is for me? Is that the only option? And I think we just heard from Diane a very promising albeit challenging path. Can you address the misconceptions, if there are any, about that feeling about the clinical trials? I think that's a great question. And you're right. So many uh, people have this idea in their head that a clinical trial means that you're being a guinea pig and that there must not be uh, any options left or you know, you're in a very bad situation. Certainly that's how cancer trials were 20 years ago, uh, cancer clinical trials, but things have changed a lot. Clinical trials have evolved, cancer treatments have evolved, and um, many of the clinical trials nowadays are more targeted towards the group of patients that even before the trial begins, there's a 
uh, great scientific thought put into who might best respond. Um, and, and, and today's clinical trials are much more geared to people who have a high chance of responding. Uh, so I tell my patients, you know, clinical trial participation is always optional. It's, it's never something that they would be forced to do. But if they're open to thinking about it, it can often be uh, a very good option. Sometimes even the, the first option uh, that they should do when first diagnosed. You know, clinical trials range quite a bit. Some of them are medicines that are being tried in uh, humans for the very first time. Others are um, follow-ups on uh, early preliminary data that looks promising and they're just looking for more, more information to add to the pile. Some clinical trials are for drugs that are already FDA approved in another type of cancer. And now they're accumulating data in lung cancer, for example. So there's a wide range of clinical trials. And then based on what we can learn about a patient's tumor uh, through the genetic analyses and other types of tests, you know, we can predict whether we think a trial may be especially promising for a given specific person in front of us in the clinic. So, you know, you have to talk to the patients and inform them about what type of trial you're proposing. How confident are you that you think it could be helpful for them? Or, you know, there, there are some situations where it still is a little bit of a, a toss up, a shot in the dark, maybe because you're out of standard options. Um, so just using the term clinical trial encompasses this whole wide range of different types of scenarios. And, and just having an open and honest conversation with the patient about the trial you're talking to them about is really important. Upal, I know you have a lot of opinions about clinical trials. And so um, I was reading in Forbes magazine that and, and their question was, why do only 8% of cancer patients in the U.S. participate in clinical trials? Do you have any thoughts about this? Do I or do I not have thoughts about this? I have a lot of thoughts about this, Hildy. And I'll, I'll refer to what Dr. Sequist mentioned, which is that there's a lot of promise right now with lung cancer clinical trials. And I think patients are being offered clinical trials as not the last line resort, but in fact, when a patient is diagnosed as the first line treatment option, but also listening to Diane's story about her journey through clinical trials, one of the things that's very apparent to me as a patient advocate is for a patient to participate in a clinical trial, a lot of stars have to align. First of all, the patient needs to have a doctor such as Dr. Sequist who can have candid discussions about clinical trials. Then you need the patient to be getting treated at a center where clinical trials are being offered. And I think the most important thing in my mind is when we think of clinical trial design, they're not really designed with patients in mind. And if you ask me about the 8% statistic, I think it's an aggregate number. I think it's lower. In fact, in some centers, you have one or 2% patients participating. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have 30 to 40% patients participating in clinical trials. So obviously some of us are doing it really well and some of us are not doing it well at all. And when I think of some of the factors that prevent patients from participating in clinical trials, I think I sort of bucket them into two big groups. You know, the medical factors and the non-medical factors. The medical factors, in my opinion, are patient-specific clinical factors. For example, the patient may not be appropriate for a particular trial or 
they may be too sick to participate in a particular trial. But on the other hand, are the non-medical factors, and in my mind, they're actually even more important sometimes than the medical factors. And the non-medical barriers, for lack of better words, in my mind, are sometimes the treating physician will not offer a clinical trial to a patient. And we know that the biggest determinant of a patient even considering a clinical trial is their doctor offering it to them. So having those candid discussions up front. The second piece is making it really easy for the patient to participate, making it financially neutral, less burdensome for a patient to participate. And again, we've heard this time and again that you know, patients should not be compensated for clinical trials, or this is up for debate. But the reality is all things equal. We do know that if you make clinical trial participation financially neutral for a patient, then the chances of the patient participating in a clinical trial is much higher. And when I say financial neutrality, I'm not talking about just reimbursing clinical trial costs. There are a lot of hidden financial costs in a clinical trial as well. For example, a patient taking time off, a patient having to travel to another city. So there are a lot of hidden costs in a clinical trial. So I think when we talk about barriers, we need to talk about this big white elephant in the room, which is clinical trial participation costs for a patient. And so in my mind, that's one of the biggest reasons why we have low participation rates in cancer clinical trials. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. Upstage Lung Cancer exclusively uses music and the performing arts to get the word out about lung cancer. Through concerts and activities, Upstage helps fund much needed research. As the saying goes, find it, treat it, beat it. Please subscribe to this podcast series and tell your friends. Oh, and if you'd like to join our efforts, consider a donation of any amount at upstagelungcancer.org. And now, back to the podcast. Linnea, um, I know this is something that you've been participating in, some clinical trials. Could you tell a little bit about your own journey, your lung cancer journey, and also your experience with clinical trials? Sure. First of all, thank you for having me here today. I was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2005, a year after Diane. And um, amazingly, at that time, my doctor tested me for EGFR. Um, I was negative. So I had most of my left lung removed, followed by adjuvant chemo. And I should mention that I also was offered my first clinical trial at this time because there was the possibility of adding Avastin to the chemotherapy. But as it turned out, I had been a bit of a bleeder during my surgery. And so it was considered a dangerous option. So that didn't happen. What did happen is my cancer returned almost immediately. And I too began watch and wait, but watch and wait more because there was really nothing else to do. Back in 2005, it was primarily chemotherapy, surgery, or radiation. And I had tried the first two, radiation was not an option for me. So by the summer of 2008, I was restaged to four and told I had three to five months left to live. Um, 
I accepted this, the seeming reality because there were no options. And then this remarkable thing happened. And that was that my biopsy had been submitted for further genetic testing and come back positive for an ALK mutation, which had just been identified as a driver in lung cancer. And better yet, there was a stage one trial at the hospital where I was receiving my care that targeted ALK mutations. And so on October 1st of 2008, I became the fourth person in the world with non-small cell lung cancer to take an ALK inhibitor. And yes, I had an amazing <laughs> response. So, you know, obviously I did not die. And here I am this many years later, I have now participated in five first in human trials. Um, the last one I was in, I needed to leave because I experienced ocular toxicity. I had blisters on my retina. And this is, you know, always a, a realistic risk in these first in human trials where they are testing for safety. So right now I am in between treatments just on one drug as maintenance. Um, and I'm also doing this wild thing where I'm participating in a hackathon to where I've released my data and I'm crowdsourcing to see if anybody comes up with any unique solutions as to where I should go next. Yay. Well, I, I'll tell you, um, you are a force. You are an amazing person. Your voice has been heard. You've got a great blog. You write so well. I really, I love reading your blog and, um, yeah, your courage, your ingenuity, just as Diane, just, you know, to plow forward and grab life. And I think that's the main thing here, you know, that clinical trials offer an option to really grab life and not to surrender to kind of what, what was. There are a few terms, maybe the people listening to this, this podcast know these terms, but maybe they don't. Um, so, Leisha, can you say, so what, what the heck is a mutation? What does that mean? <laughs> and then I know I've heard the word adjuvant um, uh, therapy. So maybe some of the listeners don't know what that means. So could you say a little something? Yeah, the, the last um, 15 to 20 years have been uh, a time of great discovery in lung cancer, where we learned that some, but not all lung cancers are driven uh, to grow uh, by a mutation or a change in their DNA. So this isn't the type of thing that is inherited from generation to generation and um, uh, patients with cancer uh, who have children or you know, nieces and nephews are always relieved when, when we explain to them that we're not looking for something that could affect your family members. What we're doing when we look for these cancer mutations is testing the tumor itself to see what's making it tick and to see if there's some sort of vulnerability that we can then target with a specific therapy that's personalized to the signature of the cancer. 
Um, so this whole field is called targeted therapy and has been one of, of a great um, improvements in therapy options for lung cancer patients um, over the last couple of decades. There have been more and more specific mutations discovered and, and subsequently drugs developed that target those specific mutations. Um, the term adjuvant uh, therapy just refers to drug therapy that's given, uh, so typically chemotherapy, drug therapy that's given after surgery. Um, it's a little bit different than when patients have advanced disease or stage four disease where we are watching their cancers uh, with CAT scans to see if it responds to the treatment or doesn't respond to the treatment. If someone's had their tumor taken out surgically, we don't see any evidence of the cancer on scans but we know that there could be microscopic cancer cells. That's what the adjuvant therapy is treating. Thank you. I, I think that helps a lot um, to help the listener understand um, a little more about some of the terms that we've been talking about. Diane, you, you were saying that you, you really wanted something new. Um, you were looking for something new. Was there any... Um, aspect of looking for something new or, or stepping into a clinical trial that was scary for you and, um, and why, if, if so? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, just to be honest with you, I think whenever you're changing your treatment plan, it's a scary thing, regardless of whether it's a clinical trial or not, quite frankly. And in my case, um, the two clinical trials that I was on, I, the first one, well, they're both combination drugs, but I was the first one at my cancer center to be on both of these combinations. Um, and although, you know, we had a pretty good idea about the side effects of the two drugs individually, putting them together is always something that, you know, it's, it's, it's a trial by error in some aspects. Um, the second clinical trial that I was on from 2017 to 2020, I, you know, we, we talked a lot about whether or not I go on a clinical trial or I use a standard of care treatment because actually it had just been come out that there was a new, new drug for standard of care treatment that looked really promising. And it, it wasn't like a slam dunk that I would just go immediately into this clinical trial. I mean, there was a lot of conversation about what to do. Um, but in my case, we made the decision to go on the clinical trial because I feel that in, uh, with, with treating diseases across the board, whether it be cancer or something else is combination of drugs is an area which shows a lot of promise to try to combat resistance. Um, you know, that's what's happened with, with HIV and AIDS, you know, a, a cocktail of drugs to make it. Uh, effective and now you know I have a very good friend with HIV and and she has a, she's living a very long life and she's pregnant with her first child so you know there's all these great things and I think that was something in my head that you know I think cancer treatment is going to be more and more a combination of drugs in order to help with the resistance issue that we have and so although the standard of care treatment was very um attractive, I made a decision that I did want to go on this clinical trial, this combination, and, um, and 
Yeah. So, but I think Hildy, at the end of the day, all of us that have a cancer diagnosis that when they're changing treatment plans, it's a scary thing, whether or not it's a standard of care treatment, or if it's a clinical trial, because you're kind of in a new territory. Alicia, did you have a thought about this or some experience yourself with your patients? Yeah, I think that Diane brings up a really good point, which is um, a lot of people who are considering going on a clinical trial do have other options, standard options. And so a lot of times there's a conversation about which path would be better. And um, sometimes there's a, a reason why one path is better, but if, if it's truly either one could be equal for the patient, one thing that I always try to remember is that you know, we, we're lucky we have so many therapies for lung cancer today, but we do not have an infinite number of therapies. You know, there, there's a finite number. And while we are trying to put one treatment after another, after another, for every patient we treat, at some point we may run out of, of options. And so what I also like about clinical trials is that they offer another option to the menu. And, um, so the standard therapies are always going to be there. They're always, if you try a clinical trial and, and you know, if it doesn't pan out the way you hoped, you can always return to the standard therapy that's FDA approved. It's not always the case with a clinical trial that you could try a standard therapy first. And if it doesn't work out the way you want, then go to the trial because some trials prohibit certain medicines from being given or, um, you know, they, they're only open to patients who have had X number of prior treatments. And so if you go with another standard therapy, you may no longer be eligible or the trial could close, you know, trials, they open and they have a certain number of seats available. And once those seats are all filled, they close. So, you know, I think that um, when, when all else is equal, or relatively equal, I often will counsel people to try and think about the trial because it does afford an additional option um, in what is a finite menu. Glad you said what you did because um, it made me think I, I had a good friend who had lung cancer who lost his life, but was offered two very different um, possible treatments. Um, and um, at the time it was like, well, it could be this or it could be that and try to make up your mind what you think is best. And he felt like it was on him to make this kind of decision. Uh, eventually he chose, you know, it was like you, you're on the fence, you know, this way or that eventually made a choice. But um, I, I would say from the patient's perspective, um, it's really great to have what you just said. It's great to have a physician who says, well, all else being equal, my own opinion is this. I mean, eventually it's the patient's choice, but, but it's really nice to have someone weigh in on, on one of those choices. So what Leisha had said is, is really very interesting because it's basically kind of what happened in my last go about with the clinical trial. I chose a clinical trial. If I had chosen the standard care of treatment, this clinical trial would no longer be an option for me. We always knew I could go to the standard of care if I had to. And so I did this clinical trial. I was on the trial for three years. It worked quite well while I was, while I was on the trial. Um, and now I'm actually on the standard of care drug. 
because one of the things, it, because it's a clinical trial, we were not really sure how well these particular drugs were gonna do crossing the blood-brain barrier. And I ended up developing a few brain metastases last summer. And so the standard of care drug actually does get through the blood-brain barrier much more effectively. And so I went on that drug and it totally took care of the brain metastases. So it's really interesting how Leisha talked about that because though we knew if I did standard of care, I wouldn't have the clinical trial as an option. I have to say, I wasn't really thinking that I would do the clinical trial and then go to the standard of care drug, but that's exactly what happened. And I think that's one of the things, you know, we're talking about is like, you know, to be open to like different pathways because different treatment paths will help you get more runway, I like to say, you know, and both Linnea and I here, you know, we're, we're old timers in the lung cancer community, we're anomalies. And, and I feel so fortunate that both of us, you know, she's 16 years um, fighting this disease. I'm 16 and a half years. I mean, it's really phenomenal. And honestly, I don't think, I think, I think Linnea feels the same way and Linnea, you can jump in, but I don't think either one of us would feel that we'd have been here without the options that we've had through um, the center in which we're being treated. I, I, I see Linnea shaking her head, so uh, in agreement. Um, so Linnea, what would, what would your advice be to patients and patients and families um, when considering clinical trials? Um, you, just a general sense of advice. Well, whatever comes to mind about that. I, I think that um, some very salient points have already been touched upon, you know, that you, you need to look at each treatment option almost like a card. And, you know, you have a hand of cards and you're playing a game. And which one do you play first? So that's important. The other thing, and this is to sort of reiterate some of what Upal was saying, is there are barriers to participation that you need to consider before you enroll. And, you know, I am a veteran of five clinical trials now, um, therapeutic ones. I've also done smaller ones just to test plasma. But um, it's expensive, you know, and right now my income is such that I'm on mass health. And for the first time this year, I haven't had to worry about medical bills. But every year before this, I have maxed out my deductible in January. And it's because of all of the expenses associated with a trial, because what people don't understand is that drug is free. Sometimes certain procedures will be considered or covered by the sponsor, but everything else is billed to insurance. So that means that I, the participant, pay the co-pays. So as Upal said, I would love to see clinical trials get to a place where it's a net zero output of cash. I, I think that would make it easier 
So Paul, since you're the renegade <laughs> suggesting this, I love it. So how are we going to make that happen? How are we going to make that happen? How are we going to get treatment to people who need it and help people who need support um, in, in making you know, these choices? Hilly, that's a great question. And if you had asked me this question five years ago, you would have gotten a very different answer. As we speak, there are models that are incorporating this, this element of financial neutrality that let's make it very easy for patients to participate in clinical trials. And this is not an NCI trial. We all know that trials that are run through the NCI. That's, the, that's the National Cancer Institute. That's the National Institute. Cancer Institute. I apologize, Lee. Uh, <laughs> we, we do know that trials run at the NCI are fully paid for, for patients who consider participating in a trial that's run through the NCI. And for the longest time, pharma sponsors were sort of shy of doing that. But now there are uh, pharma sponsors who are making it much easier from a financial perspective for patients to participate in a clinical trial. So it is very much possible. And we also know that uh, the, the excuse or the pushback we, had, we used to receive in the past is that regulators prohibit sponsors from uh, financial uh, from making it financially neutral for patients and we now know that that's also not true the regulators do not mandate any sort of cost restrictions from a patient perspective for a clinical trial so all this is to say that i think we are at a at a point in in science and research where new models are being explored yes you know there are older models and there are sponsors who sort of transplant older models but there are also forward thinking sponsors now who are doing things the right way the other piece about making clinical trials less burdensome for patients in is there's been a huge amount of discussion about decentralized trials where essentially making sure that the travel burden for a patient is minimized, especially when a clinical trial is not run locally for a patient. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us that some version of a hybrid trial where a patient has less travel as compared to the initial amount of travel that was expected. All of these new models are being explored. So as, uh, you know, as bleak as I sounded earlier on, I do feel that people are exploring new models. I do feel that people are bringing patients to the forefront to have these candid discussions about making trials much more patient-centric. I just want to add that this is happening because advocates have been outspoken. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. It, it's something we have been asking for for years now. Absolutely. And this is a no-brainer. And I do not even know that why this was a point of conversation for all these years. In my mind, in my very naive mind, this is a no-brainer that you make it easy for patients to participate in clinical trials. And that's one of the reasons we're doing these podcasts is to help continue to put information out. Um, people, uh, patients who are people, <laughs> you know, when a person is diagnosed with with cancer, with lung cancer, there's so much confusion, there's so much fear, there's so much information and misinformation and stigma and questions. So one of our efforts as a patient advocate organization is to try to get accurate information out and to empower every single person with this diagnosis and 
any diagnosis to have a voice and to speak up and to ask for things. And if you don't get the right answers or the kinds of answers you're looking for, to keep asking anyway. Jordan, what do you think? I, I just am so impressed with the entire panel, but I did want to say that along with the information and the education, there's the inspiration. I think Diane and Linnea are true heroes in this game. And I think that's what people need to hear, particularly those who are either going through it themselves or have a loved one going through the cancer journey, that uh, there are valiant warriors who have paved the way. And there are two great ladies here that uh, are a shiny example, as well as our phenomenal doctor and patient advocate on the team. So please spread the podcast around. It's it's a good, positive message that it can work. Totally agree. And um, I just want to thank everyone for participating today. I, you know, everyone on this panel um, is very dear to me, and I admire each one of you for what you do and how you dedicate your life to a positive cause for your own life and for those around you and those who can hear you, your voice, what you have to say. And um, I think that that's the point to leave this podcast today with a message of hope that there are new treatments, there are new things going on. We have to do a better job at disseminating information. We're fortunate in Boston where we're we're uh, recording to have great centers of excellence, but there are more rural areas, there are more community hospitals that need to get more information and more assistance. So it's the voice of hope today and thank each and every one of you. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage. Upstage.